All right. Well, let's go ahead, please, and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. To be honest with you, I'm quite looking forward to being in this text because Paul is getting a little bit violent with us at the end of Ephesians chapter 6. And I quite like that. So if you want a title for this morning's message, it's called Dressing for War. And let's read from verse 10 through to the end of verse 17. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as you bring us to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and onwards, Lord, did we grasp afresh today that we are indeed in a battle and yet you have equipped us for this battle. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law, would you open our eyes to behold the truth, the realities that are so clearly articulated in your word here by your servant Paul. Help us, Lord, by your amazing grace. Amen. In our, in our culture today, in reality, people think of the devil as a bit weird and seriously untrue, don't they? I mean, it is a bit of an odd concept. That the devil, many people dismiss him as just some idea, like a medieval concept that really doesn't really exist. And so you might see a picture of the devil on some castle walls or some, in, some aboriginal cave or something. But in reality, surely he doesn't actually exist. Some people dismiss him as a sort of Dante's Inferno, Inferno type character. Short, red, hairy legs, long tail, trident. And people go, ha, ah, isn't that funny? Let's dress up as him as... You know, at Halloween, it's just classed as no big deal, that it's not really a, an important or a reality in any shape or form. And yet all the way through the Bible, from Genesis through to Revelation, over 50 times, the devil is mentioned, and he's mentioned as an absolute reality. He was an angel, created by God and put in charge of worship. And he was a big deal, angel. He's on a level par with Michael and Gabriel, and yet he rebelled. He was the leader of worship in the heavenly realms, but he rebelled against God. He wanted ultimately to be God and to take God on, and so that's exactly what he did. And so he rebelled, and so now Satan is the leader of the evil party. He is the true leader of all evil against God, against God's purposes, and against God's people. A position that he leads well, he leads with great power, great evil, 
and great cunning, positioning himself, quite frankly, to do all he can to oppose God, God's plan, and God's people. And you know, whether we like it or not, when we read Ephesians chapter 6, what we realize is we are at complete and utter war with him. It's just quite simply a fact. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, it is easy for believers, especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected, to be complacent and become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and in a kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. Theirs is the victory and peace of the defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they are not engaged in the war. But God gives no deferments or exemptions. His people are at war and will continue to be until Christ returns. My friends, as Christians, we are at war. And we will continue to be at war until Christ returns. Satan, with all his cunning, with all his power, with all his evil, is without question warring against us. And as he does so, he is employing every weapon he possibly can in his arsenal. He seeks to kill us, to destroy us, to devour us. He uses the weaponry of blinding us, casting doubt towards us, tempting us accusing us. So many people do not take him seriously, and yet what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is he is dead serious, and you are at war against him. Or more to the point, he is at war against you. Everything that we've delighted in so far in the book of Ephesians, from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 6, verse 9, all the different things that the Apostle Paul has been calling us to do. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, all the different things that he's been wanting us to get excited about and amazed about as we understand who God is and how he has saved us and positioned us for his glory and the gift of salvation. From chapter 4 onwards, all the things now that God is calling us to do to serve him to reflect Him in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, all of the different things. Ultimately, Satan wants us to screw up on all of them. And so the Apostle Paul right now is saying, guys, you need to wisen up. There's one who is seeking to bring you down. There's one who is seeking to stop you applying everything that has been spoken about at Sovereign Grace Church for the last year. There is one quite literally at war against you. The backdrop to this passage is war. Satan's war with God, God's plan, and God's people. But it's not the drive of the passage. The drive of this passage is pastoral. And so in a sentence, you want to know what this text is about? It's about this. The devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and his people... But God has given us all that we need to stand against them. And so let's get dressed for war. That's what this passage is about. It's the truth that without question, the devil and his forces fight in clear opposition towards God and God's people. It's an absolute fact. It's what he does, and it's what these spiritual forces of evil do to seek to stand against us. But God has given us all that we need to stand against them. 
He's given us every last thing. We do not need to fear the devil. We do not need to fear the spiritual forces of evil. God has given us all we need. And so here's the application. So let's get dressed for war. Verse 11 says it this way. Put on then the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What is the application of this text? Put on then the full armor of God. Satan is warring against you, but God has given you all you need to stand against them. So get dressed. Put on then the whole armor of God. You know, today, I want us then to examine this armor. I want us to understand what it is that we are to put on against the devil and against his schemes. I want us to understand with clarity, if we are going to stand firm against his schemes, that presupposes that the devil is scheming towards you. Well, do you want to run out to the war naked? I would not recommend. Or do you want to run out to war dressed for battle in the things that God has given you so that you may stand firm against his schemes? Well, let's study then this text so that we can understand then what it is that we're to put on. And what we find in this text are six things, six items of armory that God has given us. Let's read verse 13 through 17 again. So we take them in. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It's a promise. That sounds good. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so let's go. Number one, the belt of truth. You know, the whole idea behind this scene that Paul is talking to us about here is a Roman soldier. And Paul is very acquainted with a Roman soldier. Because there's a Roman soldier standing by Paul as he's writing the book, okay? As Paul is writing Ephesians, he's in chains. He's not just running around the place willy-nilly. He is in chains, and there would be a Roman soldier standing guard over him. The Roman soldier is in his full gear. Because if Paul starts, he's taking him out, okay? That's the way it works in Roman culture. The Roman is going to take him out. So Paul is actively, as he pens this letter, looking over at at least one soldier, if not more, to his left or to his right, and looking at what they've got on, looking at what they're dressed in. And the first thing he wants to help us see, then, is about this belt. Now, a Roman soldier would wear a big, heavy belt. It'd be made of leather, and it would be absolutely essential to him. This belt would keep everything else in place. You don't want to be running into battle falling over your tunic. It's awkward and slightly embarrassing. So it's very important that that belt would go on and get fastened around your weight and get fastened on tight. And if it was big and you fastened it tight, it would also give strength to your inner core. If you put a belt on tight and it's big, I did weight training when I was about six It was embarrassing, didn't have any effect whatsoever, complete waste of time. However, I did have a little belt. And what I did find is this belt, if you could attach it right, it made your stomach muscles get real tight and it made your back straight. It gave strength to your inner core. That's what it did for the Roman soldier. And for us as Christians, we too need a belt with those qualities. We need a belt that is going to hold everything in place and that is going to give strength to our core, our personhood, and strength to our back so that as we go into fight, we know that we can stand strong and clear 
Well, that belt, according to the Apostle Paul, is the belt of truth. It's doctrine. You see, doctrine matters. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. Bruce Mill then follows up. He says, why then is the study of doctrine so vital? Firstly, as a matter of plain fact, every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God. As our understanding of God and His ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book he has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, and what God wants of us, we need to study Scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. Listen, at every point... Right living begins with right thinking. At every point, right living begins with right thinking. We looked at this a few weeks ago within the context of marriage. Right marriage starts with right thinking. Right parenting starts with right thinking. Right work starts with right thinking. Doctrine matters. And what the Apostle Paul is helping us see here is that right fighting starts with right thinking. If you are going to stand clear against the devil's schemes, one who is going to seek to knock you off track, one who is going to accuse you, bring doubt to you, temptation to you, then you need a belt strapped to your inner core. You need a belt that is going to hold your back firm and hold your belly in so that you can stand strong in the very core of who you are. That belt is the belt of truth. It's doctrine. It holds us clear. And that is why in Sovereign Grace Church, I'm never going to make any apology for encouraging you to study doctrine. Because it's important. Right living always comes after right thinking. Wrong thinking usually leads to wrong living. You know what wrong thinking? Usually means that when those schemes of the devil come, that individual is all over the place. Well, I just can't, I can't cope. I don't know what to do. I, I, I just don't think I can cope with all these different things. I'm just, I'm just shocked. I, I'm just losing it. Most situations where I step up and help people in those situations, most of the time, wrong thinking is coming. That belt doesn't even exist around them. And, and hence, they're all over the place. You know, maybe in your life, you're going through a situation right now or situations that are just causing you to panic that they're just causing you to freak out left, right, and center in your life. My friends, I want to encourage you. How's your belt looking right now? You giving yourself to God's word? Studying it? Understanding it? Grasping who he is? Are you picking up books from the bookshop that are theological in nature, that are building truth into your life? If not, then the very first piece of armory that God has given you, you're just not utilizing. So you're just running out into battle without a belt. You need the belt on. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of what God has given us. So number one, the belt of truth. But that's not all. Verse 14b also talks to us about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, no Roman soldier with even a brain cell 
would go into battle without the breastplate. I mean, this would just be a vital, an absolute vital piece of armory against what the enemy would seek to throw at him. See, in, in battle, there'd be all sorts of weaponry flying around the place. There'd be javelins flying around, there'd be swords, there'd be arrows, there'd be many things flying towards any given Roman soldier. And so one thing that he had to protect very clearly was his heart and his vital organs. Because you get an arrow in your leg, you might be all right. Probably hurt a bit, but you'd probably be all right. You get an arrow in your heart, you're dead. And so it's so important that the breastplate was around his heart and was around his vital organs. The thorax, as it was known, would be made of tough leather and metal, and it would have the job of protecting that soldier's vital organs and heart. Or so it is with us. You see, in the fight against the enemy, our heart is particularly susceptible, is it not? Our heart, the seat of our passions, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our feelings, that's often where he attacks, is it not? That is the place where we feel troubled. That is the place where we feel all over the place. Most of the time when Satan is attacking, he attacks the area of our heart. He has created a world system and culture in which he seeks to confuse us, in which he seeks to confuse our emotions and thereby pervert our affections, our morals, our loyalties, our passions. He seeks to knock us off track with the very core of who we are, cultivating different things in our lives, stirring up passions that we kind of know are wrong, but we just feel them so stirred. And so surely we could go with it because God just wants us to be happy. God does want you to be happy. But are you sure that's what is going on there? Is God stirring that? Or is that your passions and emotions being stirred by quite something else? Namely, the evil one. Satan seeks to undermine holy living and tempt us to immorality, to greed, to envy, to hate, to every other form of malice. In the process, he seeks to erode truth. He seeks to lie to you and deceive you that, well, it is probably technically sin, but I don't think it's a big deal. And Jesus has died for you anyway, right? You'll be okay. It'll probably be good for you. Satan seeks to undermine and erode truth. He's done it since the Garden of Eden, and it's still what he does to this day. He goes after our hearts. And so Paul, with that in mind, says, listen up. You must put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is what God has given you against the defense of Satan's schemes. He is going to go after your heart, so ensure that you not only have the belt on, but that breastplate of righteousness needs to go on, and it needs to go on very clearly against arrows and darts and weaponry that are going to come after your heart. Now that breastplate of righteousness, this righteousness that he's talking about here, is the practical righteousness that he's been talking about all the way since chapter 4. Okay, this is not imputed righteousness, although that is valid. He's not talking about that. He's talking about practical righteousness here. Something that we are to put off and put on. Remember that? Attending the divine changing room, Ephesians chapter 4. And we understood that part of our role now as Christians is to pursue the righteousness that has already been declared in our lives. We've got to put off sin and put on things that God wants in our lives. 
That is practical righteousness. And the command to do that came with a blessing, did it not? Ephesians 4.27 says, Do all this so that you may give no opportunity to the devil. Make sense? So you need to strap on the breastplate of righteousness by genuinely pursuing sanctification in your life. By putting off and putting on. Because when we do that, it becomes a breastplate in our life to guard us against the devil's attacks on our heart. It's fascinating, is it not? We just think that sanctification is just about me becoming more like Jesus. And, well, is it kind of optional? I'll try my best. Paul says, hang on. If you don't do this, then you're going into battle against the devil's schemes with no breastplate on. You're just going to be hanging out. He's going to be having a pop at you. And you are distinctly susceptible to the devil's scheme. So put it on. Put off and put on. Go through the process of sanctification in your life because as you do, you will be protected with a breastplate of righteousness against the devil's schemes and allow no no opportunity to him. So, put it on. Is yours on? Do you have yours on? If not, put it on. Number three. The shoes of the gospel of peace. There's nothing like a good shoe, is there? At the end of the day, I do like shoes. I actually bought some new shoes this week. Very looking forward to Ralph Lauren. Might be because our lodger works at Ralph Lauren. I'm not sure, but yes, I'm very pleased about shoes. But a good shoe is important to everybody. Everybody likes shoes. To a Roman soldier, a shoe was not a fashion statement. To a Roman soldier, a shoe was a serious piece of kit. It was just vital that he had a shoe that would be tough, that would be durable, that would enable him to have good grip. And it had to be tough and durable and have good grip depending on whatever the terrain would be. Because he could be in Rome or he could be in Ireland. And the two terrains are a little different and what is needed are quite different. So he needed a shoe that was tough, that was durable, had good grip and can handle really whatever terrain would be thrown at him. Well, in our battle, our shoes need the same type of qualities. They need to be tough. They need to be durable. They need to have good grip. And they need to have good grip, whatever the terrain is. And so what does God give us? He gives us the shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel. You ever sang the song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? Good. They're the shoes of the gospel that are being described there, ultimately. You see, for many years of my life, I thought of this text here and that verse as evangelistic. So I got quite excited about it because I love evangelism. We will be doing a series in this church starting in October after Bob Coughlin goes. And we'll probably be doing a series until the end of the year just looking at mission, just looking at in it to win it, being in the world to win the world. And so when I hit texts like this, I get all excited. The shoes of the gospel of peace. Great, let's go get them. But that's taking that verse out of context. Because Paul isn't talking here about going and getting them. He's talking about standing firm. He's talking about standing firm against the devil's schemes. See, the reason why it is so important that we keep the main thing the main thing, the reason why it is so important that we tell the gospel to ourselves daily is because we are in a battle against the evil one who is seeking to knock us off our feet daily. And so daily, we need to have the shoes of the gospel of peace on so that we may stand firm on Christ the solid rock. So that whatever he throws at us, whatever the terrain we find ourselves in, we are unaffected. 
because we have shoes on that are clear, that are stable, that are durable, that are tough, and have profoundly good grip at the bottom of. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we've been given. The shoes of the gospel of peace. Number four, then, is the shield of faith. And I quite like this one. Verse 16 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Alas, now we get onto a bit of kit that we haven't got to wear. This is just some bad boy shield, and it's a really good shield. There's two shields that Romans would carry. One would be a bit girly, just small, wouldn't even bother with that. But the other shield is absolutely full on. And if you've ever seen, you ever seen the film Gladiator? Oh, probably the best film ever made. That and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. They're quite different, but very good films. But Gladiator is an absolute classic because you really get to study what Roman culture was like through that film. And if you've seen it, the opening scene right at the start is a a load of Romans lining up alongside and they have many, many shields. Well, that's the shield that he's on about here. That's the shield that he's talking about, the scutum, the, the four foot high by two foot wide shield. This shield was incredibly thick. It was made of two pieces of laminated wood. Around that, they put lots of cloth and then leather. And then across the top and across the bottom, they bound it with cast iron around these shields. They would probably barely be able to lift them. But if they did lift them and they did move behind them, what it would enable a soldier to do is that soldier could carry that shield and put the shield in front of him. And when the enemy then throws javelins... He throws swords, and particularly he throws fiery darts, fiery arrows. They hide behind the shield. And so, so often when they pick the shield up, this thing would be like a smoking porcupine. You know, it'd just have, be full of different arrows. And that's what you see in the film Gladiator. They pick it up, and there's just all these arrows sticking out that are still smoldering because they've been thrown over by the enemy. Well, that's the scene that Paul has in mind as he, as he writes this. The shield... You see, the Roman soldier was well acquainted with what it would be to, like in battle to have fiery arrows thrown at him. They would come over in the thousands from archers that would be positioned behind the battle lines. They would be coming over in the thousands. And so the Romans at that point would hold up their shields and protect their entire bodies from the fiery arrows. Well, my friends, we too, according to this text, have flaming darts that are thrown at us. They're Satan's flaming darts that are indeed thrown at us, whether we like it or not. They are launched at us from our enemy. And to combat that, God in his grace has given us a shield. The shield of faith. A shield that is far larger than anything a Roman ever carried. A shield that will protect us for the max. You see, whether we like it or not, as God's people, we face the flaming darts of the enemy. We can, refuse to, we can refuse that. We can pretend that it doesn't happen. All right. Do your best. Or we can say, well, hang on. This is in Scripture. And so the enemy is firing darts at me. That's the truth. And if you refuse to believe that or understand that, then you are still going into the same battle that all the rest of us are. It's just we've got our shields and you haven't. That's not recommended. The fiery darts of the evil one 
are things that we face all the time in our lives. You see, we will face repeated rallies of the darts of temptation. Temptation towards lust, temptation towards sensuality, temptation to compromise, temptation to live for ourselves, temptation to just be cross and think, I'm worth it, I'm worth more. You will be tempted by the repeated rallies of the darts of the enemy regularly. Likewise, you will be tempted by the repeated rallies of the darts of doubt. See, we all face times in our lives where we face trials, do we not? They happen. Sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. And it is in those seasons that I think the fiery darts of the enemy come so clearly and so strongly. There will be doubt in our mind as we face trials. Have you ever faced a trial and then wondered, God, where are you now? Where did you go? What happened? You know what that is? That's a flaming dart of the enemy. He's seeking to bring doubt into your mind. He's seeking to bring temptation into your mind, accusation into your mind. We go through trials and we wonder, well, God, if you are really in control, then clearly you don't love me. Or clearly you don't care. Or clearly you're uninterested. Darts coming time and time again into our lives, into our minds, into our hearts, being fired by the evil one. You lose your job. And on comes the dart. God, why did that happen? If you really loved me, you wouldn't have let that happen. Your friend, who's a Christian, loses his battle with cancer and he leaves his wife and his small child behind. And as you leave the scene, the thing that runs through your mind is if God really loved him, he surely wouldn't have allowed this to happen. If God really cared, how could this be? You go through a sickness with your child. You find out when your child is three, that he is going to have to have cleft palate surgery and he is going to face heart surgery because he has two holes in his heart. That's what happened to us. The darts of the enemy start coming. God, why have you forsaken us? I'm a pastor. I'm meant to be trying to serve your people. Now I'm just distracted with this. How? What is this? I've served you all my life. Because I'm worth it? How can this be? You know what those things are? The flaming darts of the enemy. Darts that have been fired at your life. Darts of, darts of doubt. Darts of temptation. Darts from the evil one. And that is why it is so important that we spend time in our lives behind the shield of faith. You see, you know what's inscribed on the inside of the shield of faith? It is not doubt. But inscribed on the shield of faith behind it, which we stand, are words like this. Faithful, good, true, loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, caring, father, adopted, child, never letting go. Oh, wondrous love. Do you see? As you stand behind the shield and you speak the truth that is inscribed on the inside of it, it changes everything. 
But if we stand there without the shield, all we have is the firing darts that are coming into our hearts and minds as we wonder, God, where are you? He's right there. But you need to erect that shield in front of you to remind you, the shield of faith, that he holds you in his hands. That's not the only type of shield we have. Verse 17 then says we also have the helmet of salvation. Something else that we're to put on to protect us from the Satan's evil darts. See, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It's one of his roles. I don't know whether you young ones know what brethren is, but it's just the church. I never knew that for many years. I had no idea what it was. I thought it had something to do with bread. I, don't, I have no idea why I thought it was to do with bread, but breath of, brethren of heaven, I had no idea. I just thought this is very strange. But no, apparently it is the church, and Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of the church. Listen, one of the accusatory schemes he then does is simply this. He seeks to undermine with all his might your assurance of salvation. It's one of his schemes. That's what he does. He wants you to doubt whether you are indeed saved at all. He wants to undermine the assurance that God is giving us in Ephesians 1 and 2. Satan then wants to undermine so that everybody else goes away thinking, my goodness, I was saved before there was even time. I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed. I know that heaven is my home. I've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance. I've been adopted by God. And yet you go home thinking, but I don't think I am. I don't feel it. I'm, I'm not sure whether I am. What an evil scheme. And I've seen people have their lives robbed from Satan in that. That's what he does. He seeks to kill rob and destroy. If he can rob you of assurance so that you spend your entire life not being useful for God, but instead doubting God, to then find ultimately on that last day, oh, I am in after all, then he will. He will scheme against you to bring you down. He uses in that the weapons of discouragement, condemnation, and doubt. And he uses them readily and regularly. You see, Satan wants us to be discouraged and condemned. Do you realize that? Listen, God has a great plan for your life. So does Satan, all right? It's just something we've got to wisen up about. God has a wonderful plan for your life. But there's another one that also has a fantastic plan for your life that is scheming against you with great detail. He knows where you're susceptible. He's no fool. He knows where you're weak. And if you are weak in your mind, he's going to go right after that. He's going to go right after giving you doubt and the assurance of salvation. So he seeks to discourage you and condemn you. I'll tell you what he does in that. It's simple. He just lives his life spending time reminding you of your past. He just spends all his time reminding you of your past. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't feel that. If you were really a Christian... You wouldn't have spoken like that in that situation. If you were really a Christian, then you just wouldn't feel or talk or act the way you do. 
you would feel quite differently and you would act quite differently. The accuser of the brethren is firing darts at our minds all of the time and he seeks to add then to those darts of discouragement and condemnation, doubt, through the form of those types of questions. You know, you know what we have to do when that happens? And it does happen. There will be times in your life, probably, where you will face things like this. It's simple. There's two things that we have to do. When we're aware that Satan is seeking to undermine the assurance of our salvation, where he's seeking to bring a doubt about our salvation, a common thing that happens to believers at one time or another, it is vital that two things take place. Number one, we have to remind ourselves in that moment that our salvation is not based on feelings. It is based on fact. We have to stand on truth. Satan does not seek to argue with you in truth. He seeks to argue with you in feelings, right? That's where he wants you to think. He doesn't want you to think about God's word. He wants you to think about the way you feel. And we need to understand that our salvation is not based on feelings. It's based on fact. Romans 10 tells us, If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again, then you will be saved. It doesn't mention your feelings once. You know, it's just fact. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose again for you and you have taken him as your Lord and Savior, then you are, without question, saved. It's not based on feelings. It's based on fact. Listen, what do you think they felt in the Passover? Have you ever thought about that? What do you think they felt in Exodus? Do you think they were all huddled in their rooms going, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the angel of death to come around. This is so good. I know it's all going to work out because we put the blood around the doorposts. Do you honestly think that's what they were like? I submit to you probably many of them were in the room cowering in the corner hoping that they've done enough, hoping that they put the blood round right, wondering, is this going to be okay? What about Rahab when she's waiting in the walls of Jericho? The spies have told her, listen, Jericho is going to be crushed to the floor. You'll, you'll probably be all right, so have a go. let's have a go. Tie this scarlet cord around your window. Do you think she was going, oh, great. I can't wait to see what it's like now. I, can't, I, I mean, imagine the sound. All the walls coming down and we'll be all right. No, I submit to you, she's in the corner bricking it. You know what I'm saying? She is scared stiff, wondering, is this going to be enough? In both cases... The salvation in the Passover and the salvation towards Rahab in the walls of Jericho was not based on feelings. It was despite feelings, it was based on fact. The blood of the Passover that pointed to Jesus is what saved them. Fact. The scarlet cord which pointed to Jesus in the walls of Jericho is what saved Rahab. Fact. If you have taken Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your salvation is not based on feelings. It is based on fact that the blood of Jesus Christ has paid it all in your place. You can spend your life nervous in the corner, but if you do, you must understand all that is is the darts of the evil one that are attacking you every day of your life. And there comes a point when you say, enough, my salvation is based on fact not feelings. The second thing we do then is this. We get that bad boy helmet of salvation and we smack it on our heads and we smack it on quick because when those darts keep coming then, our minds are protected by the truth that Jesus Christ has paid it all. 
that he has done more than enough for me, that a wondrous love will never let me go because I have attached to the corners of my life the blood of the Lamb. Do you see it? Satan will seek to rob us of all joy. So what God gives us is the helmet of salvation that guards our minds from the darts of the evil one. Finally, then, number six, the sword of the Spirit. I'm a big fan of the sword of the Spirit because eventually it is actually a weapon that we can do some damage with. All the others are protective in nature, but this bad boy is something that we can get out there and do some damage with, and I love that because I'm just a bit of an aggressive man every now and again. So the idea of a sword, I just think, is so cool and so helpful. In any battle for a Roman soldier, he had a number of weapons at his disposal, but the primary one for hand-to-hand combat was always the sword. It's the same with us. We have been given a sword, the sword of the Spirit, so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. Now grab your Bibles a minute. Hold them in your hands. If you do it on your laptop, this is going to be embarrassing. But for everybody else, listen, this is your sword, right? I remember at Sunday school when we were kids, we played sheath the sword, draw the sword. Oh, it's great. We won't play that now. But this is your sword. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is something that has been given to us by God for the battle against the evil one so that we can stand firm against his schemes. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a good look at my Bible this week, and I'm thinking, this doesn't look too special on the face of it. It looks like a floppy book with a lot of... Is this it? Is this all we get? I think it could cause us a bit of, you know, I mean, it could at least look cool and sharp. I mean, that would have been good. It could have daggers sticking out the end or something, but... It doesn't look very strong. It doesn't look very sharp. But the truth is that God's word is incredibly capable and powerful and indeed sharp. In fact, it is so capable and so powerful that the evil one, Satan, can never, ever stand against it. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says it this way. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Don't you love that? The Word of God that looks floppy in your hands, it is sharp, it is living, and it is active. The Scottish pastor Thomas Guthrie says about that verse this way. He says, The Bible is quite clearly an armory of heavenly weapons a laboratory of infallible medicines, and a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. Listen to this. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. I love that. Rob us of this weapon, and our sky has lost its sun. This is a powerful weapon. It is capable It is dynamite, it is sharp, it is living, and it is active. And so when this sword is wielded around, when we testify to it, when we speak of it, when we burn it into our hearts and our minds and then talk of it, it does powerful things. See, this sword has the power to take people from death and bring them to life. It has the power within it to take us to light from darkness, to bring truth from lies. This sword is powerful and that it can bring joy from sadness. 
It can bring hope from despair and success from failure. This sword has the power in it to bring maturity out of childishness, growth out of stagnation, and very clear clarity for the way forward out of clear confusion. This sword is powerful. And that is why Paul is exhorting us at great length to take it then and brandish it. See, one thing's for sure, just as a side note, this sword, although very powerful, isn't too special on the bookshelf. I mean, it's not. I had a friend years ago that had a samurai sword, and I just thought that was so cool. Problem is, I never saw it. And I never saw it because it was on his wall, and he didn't want to touch it. It was like a showpiece of the home. And you think, I, I just love the sound. Look at it. And he, yeah, but don't touch it. Can, can we bring it down and have a look? No, we cannot bring it down and have a look at it. It's a samurai sword. That's an amazing. I love to see the samurai sword. Well, we cannot touch it. it. I think as Christians, sometimes we can be like that. This sword comes out with us on a Sunday because it, it likes a little outing on a Sunday. And then we get home and we pop it on the wall for us to look at. Until next Sunday. And then we pick it up from the wall and we take it. It ain't doing no damage on your wall. It ain't doing nothing. Just gathering dust. It has great potential. But in your home and in your life, it's really not doing anything at all. We need to bring this sword down. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. We need to have these words built into our hearts and our minds, burnt in, so that as Satan comes at different times, we can stand firm in the gospel and we can attack back with clear words. That's what Jesus did time and time again as he stood up to Satan. He responded with biblical words, biblical clarity as the sword went forward from his mouth. That's what we're to do as well in our homes, with our families, with our children, in our relationships, in our friendships, talking to ourselves. If we are going to stand firm, then this sword must be operating and living and active in our lives. Why? So that we may stand strong. So that we may stand very strong against the devil's schemes. My friends, whether you like it or not, you're at war. Satan is at war against you. Everything that we have looked at in Sovereign Grace Church since we started, he wants to rob you from. He wants to cause disunity. He wants to cause anger. He wants to cause bad marriages, bad families, bad single years. He doesn't want us to be more like Jesus. He doesn't want us to go away each week amazed by grace. He wants us to go away each week doubting grace. I'm wondering why we don't feel it like other people. He is at war against you. That's what this text completes and says about the devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and his people. But God has given you, Sovereign Grace Church, all that you need to stand against him. So let's get dressed for war. Put on that belt of truth. Put on the study of doctrine and get that belt of truth wrapped tightly around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, pursuing holiness in your life, knowing that that will enable you to stand clear against the devil's schemes. 
Put on by God's grace the shoes of the gospel of peace so that you have something to stand on that is the solid rock on which we may all stand, Christ and Him crucified. Grab the shield of faith. Not just sometimes, but as it says in the verse there, in all circumstances. Because you don't know when those darts are coming. So you've got to carry it around all the time. You've got to be ready to stand behind it at the most times when you think, surely not today. Yes, today. Get the shield out. Be prepared to grab it and sustain it and hold it in all circumstances. Put the helmet of salvation on your head and grab the sword of the Spirit and build it into your minds and your hearts and the very people you are. And then, and only then, will you be able to stand against the devil's schemes. My friends, that's a command. But it's also a promise. We have nothing to fear. God has given us all that we need. And so if we put them on, we'll be able to stand firm. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, as we gather around it for your faithful and caring provision for our lives. Lord, you, not just, you don't just see us go running out to face the enemy. You clothe us for battle. You give us all that we need. And then you instruct us with clarity and with gentleness and with care to put these things on. And so, Lord, for Sovereign Grace Church, would we not be a people that go running into our daily battles without any of these things on? Would you give us eyes to see, minds to understand, and strength to clothe ourselves in the full armor of God so that we may stand firm against the devil's schemes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you fight with us and you fight through us. We have nothing to fear because you are God and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.